our topic on the nation of Israel, it continues to our next point. The next point, point number five, is that the blessings and cursings that God announced in the Old Testament, he announced them in a certain sense. So let us see what that sense was from the beginning and how it is applied throughout Scripture. The first time we come across this phrase or notion of blessing and cursing comes from Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. The call of Abraham is recorded in verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12. That is, he was called out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans in southern Mesopotamia, and he was called to go to the land of Canaan. And this is what God says to him in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In in verse 3, in the first clause, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. In what sense does he mean, that he will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Let's see. Let's see how this is applied. Turn now to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 22. When we turn to Numbers, Numbers 22, we understand that this is describing Israel in the wilderness the rebellious generation under the leadership of Moses. And we know, especially from Hebrews 3 and 4 in the New Testament, and even 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 to 13, that that was mostly a rebellious generation. They despised God, they hated God, Moses preached Christ, and they rejected the Christ that Moses preached. They rejected the reproach of Christ. That's the wilderness generation. We must keep that in mind. We cannot think of the wilderness generation as a godly generation or primarily godly, mostly godly. That's not the case at all. If we keep that in mind, then turn, as we turn to Numbers 22, this is happening while Moses is guiding the people in the wilderness. Numbers 22 12. Numbers 22.12 says, And God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Which means that a blessing rested upon the nation of Israel in a particular sense. So there was not to be a curse by this false prophet and diviner who was hired by the kings to pronounce curses on Israel so that Israel would be defeated 
and walk away and go away. But God said to him, no, I know you were, he knows, God knows he was hired for that purpose, but you're not going to pronounce a curse on them, for they, he doesn't say he, as though he's talking about one individual, he says they are blessed so that Balaam cannot curse them. Turn to 23.8, same passage or same narrative, chapter 23, chapter 23, verse 8. And this is one of the several discourses of Balaam that God gives to him to say. God is speaking through this diviner. 23, verse 8, Balaam says this, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Correct. He cannot do so. 24, same narrative. 24, verse 9. 24, 9. Another oracle of Balaam. 24, 9. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. This, again, is repeating the blessing and the cursings mentioned in Genesis 12, verse 3. Now let's go to the New Testament. Last time we looked at Romans chapter 11. Let's read again certain verses in Romans 11 that bring out this point. And it'll become clear what the specific way is in which they are blessed. Romans 11, 1. 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now why does the apostle ask this question, this rhetorical question and answers in the definitive and absolute negative. May it never be. Why does he do that? Because there were those who believed that every single Jew was unsaved, lost, condemned to go to hell because they rejected Christ. And he says, that's not true. Look at himself. He was converted in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 2 was the day of Pentecost. Some years had passed between Pentecost and Paul's conversion. And he's a Jew, born of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's not, it's not impossible. He was a true convert. Further, we go to Romans eleven seventeen to 24. Romans eleven seventeen to 24. And pay careful attention, especially to verse 23, but also to the pronouns you and they. You, in this passage, is addressing the Gentiles in the Roman church, and the they has to do with you Gentiles. I'm speaking from your perspective. This is the attitude you should have toward the Jews, not only the Jews that are the ones you know, but the ones who are unbelieving. What is the proper view of believing Gentiles towards unbelieving Jews? That is the main issue here. 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11.17, 11
But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Simply stated, he's saying, unbelieving Jews may be converted, come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, It may happen. And meantime, don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited against them. But instead, anticipate their conversion. Expect and work for their conversion. But don't be arrogant and conceited against them. That is the disposition that we should have towards unbelieving Jews which also reiterates the fact of 11.1 that unbelieving Jews are able, according to God's predestination and the preaching of the gospel, it may end up that those Jews believe in Christ. That is the possibility. Therefore, no, we must be mindful of not cursing the one God has blessed. Okay? Just generally speaking. And he's blessed them with what? Romans 9, 1 to 5, explains the fullest list of the benefits of the nation Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Romans 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. He says all of the benefits that they have in verses 4 and 5. Benefits, privileges, blessings that the Gentiles did not receive and they are only able to participate now 
through the preaching of the gospel to all the nations and understand the significance of the adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, temple service, the promises, the fathers, and the Christ. We understand, they have yet to understand, at least a good number of them have yet to understand. And meantime, stay humble knowing that they have these benefits, so anticipate their conversion. Pray for their conversion, work for their conversion. That is the attitude. Okay, now, number six. Point number six. Are all Jews saved? Here we have another heresy. Are all Jews saved? Some believe yes. And some are so giddy with that that it distorts their senses. It distorts their common sense and it distorts the way they look at the world and it distorts the way that they preach the gospel. They don't preach the gospel. It's unnecessary to preach the gospel to the Jews because every Jew is saved. Old Testament, New Testament, since the time of the apostles, in the future, every Jew is saved. Why? Because they say, doesn't the Bible say that they are the people of God? They are the sons of God? What has, what's wrong with that view? They're not understanding people of God the way the Bible describes people of God. As we've been discussing in these last two studies. They're not understanding it that way because they don't see these verses and they are distorting these verses. These verses don't have a bearing on what they believe. They just automatically say every Jew is saved. But can we say that Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament, they were Jews. Well, Ahab was a Jew. Jezebel was from a foreign nation. But still, she bore children. Ahab had children. And so, were Ahab, was Ahab saved? No. What about in the case of Judas Iscariot in the New Testament? Was he saved? No. Then, if we go back to the Old Testament, are there not many examples of evil people in the Old Testament? Many examples. Let's use 20 examples. Universally, all commentators understand liberal, conservative, moderate, whatever twist, they know that the book of Kings describes 20 evil kings of the northern kingdom called Israel. When the kingdom was divided from the 12 tribes and then there became two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, in the north, the northern kingdom had 20 evil kings. They are described like that. So were all of those also saved? Are they in heaven? They were Jews or Hebrew people from the nation of Israel, from the tribes of Jacob. They were from those tribes and they became king. Were they all saved? No. They're all called evil. And they died evil without repentance. No Christ. How about then New Testament references New Testament references of the same. Let's turn to see examples in the book of John. 
in the book of John. Was every Jew saved in the time of Christ? Did Jesus believe that? No. He did not believe that. And pay careful attention. We're talking about what Jesus himself thought about his own countrymen. Jesus was a Jew. What did he think about other Jews? So firstly, we'll return to the book of John, book of John and chapter 1. Book of John, chapter 1. 1, 11. John 1, 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. His own, meaning his own nation, his own people, his own countrymen, did not receive him. He's speaking generally. He's not speaking absolutely because of verses 12 and 13. He says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And who would be among these many? His own twelve disciples, and the, the women who followed him from place to place. Right? Those would be examples of many who did receive him among the Jewish people. But generally, as a nation, they did not receive him. They rejected him. They denied him. And they condemned him to death. John 2. John 2, 23. John 2, 23 to 25. John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the Passover feast. The vast majority of the individuals celebrating the feast would be Jews. There would be some Gentiles who had converted, but they would be Jews primarily at the feast. And it says, many believed in him, believed why? Believed he was powerful, believed he was a prophet, believed he was sent by God because he was producing many miracles. However, they didn't believe in his death and resurrection for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. They didn't believe in that. That's why it says in verses 24 to 25, Jesus didn't believe them. He didn't trust them. He knew what they were really about on the inside. Means that they were unbelievers on the inside, but temporarily making a show, oh yes, he's great. I want to follow him. He's a great prophet. In that sense, they were following him and believing in him, but they were not believing in his death and resurrection for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's why Jesus does not trust them, it says in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself To them. He didn't trust them. He knew what they were really about. This is why, this is why Jesus and John the, the, the Apostle throughout the book of John are constantly giving examples of followers who are actually fake followers, believers who are actually bogus believers. 
they have a show on the outside, externally, they say they are Jews, and they belong to Abraham, and they know God, but actually, in reality, they are unbelievers, and they are murderous, absolutely murderous unbelievers. We know this, how? From John 8. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John 8.31. John 8.31. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. It says that they had believed him. But John's describing false belief, false faith. And we know it as the chapter proceeds. And Jesus even doubts it, knows it, because he says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you remain, continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. But if you don't continue in my word, you're not truly my disciples. You're faking it. And they say in verse 33, they answered him, 33, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? They're claiming to be the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, you cannot accuse us of what you are. Verse 37, 37, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, Jesus answers them. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. He says, my word has no place in you Jews, unbelieving Jews, unsaved Jews. 840, 840. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. They're seeking to kill him. Abraham did not do it. Further go to verse 55. Jesus still speaks to these same Jews. 55. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus says they don't know God. They claim to know God, to belong to God, but they don't know God. And he says that they are liars. And Jesus keeps the word of God, but they don't keep the word of God. Abraham believed in the word of God. Abraham believed in the coming Christ to die and rise again for his sins. But they don't believe in him. They despise that thought so much. They want to murder him. It says in 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. They want to stone him to death. Further, in John, you know the familiar passages, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Does that verse actually say 
that it only applies to Gentiles, but Jews are automatically saved? No. What about John 17, 3? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Does that verse only apply to Gentiles, but not to Jews? No, the verse doesn't say that. It's foreign to the context. So this belief that all Jews are saved is entirely unbiblical. Next, number seven, point number seven. Are no Jews saved? We gave the example of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. And then in Romans 11 that he says we should anticipate in humility other Jews being saved. Correct? But let's see some more. Some more examples of this fact that some Jews are saved. The doctrine that no Jews are saved is also heretical. It has no place in the Bible and no place within Christianity. And usually what accompanies the doctrine, the heresy, that no Jews are saved is absolute hatred of all Jewish people, no matter who they are, where they are, in what country they live, whether they are rich or poor, they despise all Jewish people. They want nothing to do with them. They would be very happy if they were all massacred. That's often what goes with the theology that no Jews are saved. But that's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Remember that the Lord told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. They pray and they wait. The day of Pentecost comes. And on the day of Pentecost, just like on, on the, for the Passover, that the Jews from various nations would travel, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship in the temple and with everyone else from all the nations. They would come great distances to worship in Jerusalem. We pick it up at verse 5. 2 verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And who's there? And, and they are saying who's there. The people who are amazed, the Jews who are amazed are saying from which nation they were raised to come visit in Jerusalem. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Okay, all of these visitors from the various nations are comprised of what? According to verse 5 and verse 10. Jews and also proselytes. What's a proselyte? A proselyte is a convert. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He sees a synagogue in his town 
He has a Jewish friend, and instead of worshiping his idols, he converts from that, rejects that, and starts to worship God in the synagogue. And he starts to hear the Word of God, the Old Testament, and read the Old Testament, and then adopt the practices and the customs and the traditions of the Jews. Some Gentiles did that. That's who are mentioned there, proselytes, in verse 10. Jews and proselytes. But predominantly, Jews. Because in every religion, typically, you have a few who are converts. Most of them were born and raised in that religion. That's a universal truth, a perennial truth. Okay? So, if that's the case, doesn't it say that Peter preached? This is the day of Pentecost, that Peter preached. And it says in 241, Acts 241, So then, those who had received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That means that the vast majority of the 3,000 souls saved on the day of Pentecost, after the Jews rejected Christ and crucified him, some of the Jews, the vast majority of them, those living in the land of Israel, probably, mostly, they crucified him. Said, crucify, crucify, right? But 3,000 souls are now saved. 3,000. And this number is added, we know, as it proceeds. What about chapter 3? Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. This is the lame beggar. The lame beggar. And where is he waiting to be healed or waiting to receive alms from the worshipers? Let's read verses 1 and 2. 3, 1 and 2. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to uh, set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. It's likely that this was a Jewish lame beggar placed there at the temple to gather alms from the worshipers entering the temple. A Jewish man healed in Acts chapter 3. Further, in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, this is the controversy between the Hellenistic Jewish widows and the Hebrew widows. Now, these would be Hebrew or Jewish women, Hebrew, Jewish women, some raised in Judea and in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, and others of them were raised in Greek areas called Hellenistic here. So their language and culture customs were more Greek than Hebrew, more Greek or Hellenistic than Jewish. That's the way they were. So we have two main groups of women who are widows in the early church. And it says in verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. 
That means that in the early church, we have these women among the Jews who are saved and worshiping in the local church. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. 13. 13. We read from 13, 13 to 14. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Then the Apostle Paul is called upon to preach a sermon. If you have a word of exhortation, you're welcome to speak it. So he exhorts them. He preaches a sermon from 3.15 all the way to 41. 3.15 to 41. And what's he do? He recounts the history of Israel and the promises of God and how those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, right? He preaches the gospel to them. And notice the reaction. 1342, 1342-43, 1342-43. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So who is eagerly receptive to the message. It says, Jews and God-fearing proselytes. Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. Very happy, and they're begging Paul to preach the same the next Sabbath. So, examples. Plenty of New Testament examples of Hebrew people being converted to Christ. And it's not only true in the New Testament era, but true throughout time. Romans 11 is the proof of that. Romans 11, that throughout time, until Christ returns, some Jews will be saved. Not all Jews saved, not no Jews saved, some Jews saved. Those chosen of God. That's point number seven. Then, shall we move on from point number seven to number... Eight. Point number eight. This has to do with terminology. Before, before we get into the next point, first let me establish some terminology. The word Israel or Israelite, Israeli. Why is it that in modern times that Whenever you hear in political speech, political discourse, articles, news reports, that those Jews living in the nation of Israel are called Israelis, and they're not called Israelites. Why are they called Israelis, not Israelites? If we read the Bible, the Bible says Israelite. It's not as though they couldn't find a word and that they had to scratch their heads and figure out what are we going to call these people because they could easily call them Israelites. An Israelite, right? But they chose Israeli. 
Why? Because those who prefer that term, those who coined that term, they prefer to say that the Jews, so-called, who live in the land of Israel, are not in any way connected to the Jews of the Bible. They're not the same as the Jews of the Bible. So we have to keep some distance. Why? Why is that a controversy? Why is that coined that way? The reason is, if the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, if they have ancient ownership of the land of Israel, the territory in modern times, if they really have the divine authority to own that land, according to the Bible, well, we need to find a way to separate these people from the Bible so that there cannot be no divine stamp of approval. So let's call them Israelis, not Israelites. That is a major reason why. Of course, many people who don't know all of this, the history of etymology, history of these words, and the history of the controversy, they're just repeating the words because that's what everybody's calling them. Well, we're talking about those who have coined the words and those who formed the nation and those who are against the formation of the nation. That's what we're talking about. Those people know what they're doing. So you will hear from from the pulpit here that I will not make a distinction like that. I will say Israel, or I'll say Israelite, but I won't say Israeli because I'm not going to buy into the deceitful terminology of the people who are trying to say the modern Jews are not the real Jews of the Bible. Okay? They are an alien race, a rebellious race, a worthless race. Let's just get rid of them. Okay? That's often the mentality. Another term. And this is still point number eight. The term Palestine. The Palestine. Also, you will notice that there will be avoidance of the use of that word Palestine. Why so? The word Palestine, it actually has an etymology coming from the word for Philistine, from Hebrew, from Greek into Latin, And then by the time it comes into English, it is the word Palestine. But if you notice the consonantal structure, it has a similarity to the biblical word Philistine. And historically, etymologically, as these words go from one language to another, the the root does go back into biblical times. So the question arises... Are the modern people claiming that land, are they Philistines or not? Some will say yes, some will say no. But it's already been argued throughout history that the Philistines disappeared, just like the Assyrians and the Babylonians disappeared. That is, they were conquered and then they merged and and intermarried so much that over time that these nations are no longer in existence. And these races or these tribes, ethnicities, are no longer in existence. Just like the Edomites are not, 
the Moabites are not, the Ammonites are not, they're not around anymore. There is no existence among these peoples in terms of tribes and ethnicities. They, they don't exist. And even as nations, they don't exist. And the same goes with the Philistines. They've been gone a long time, a very long time, for centuries. No longer in existence. So the modern people called Palestinians are claiming, some claim so and others say that they are Arabs, but they don't have any ancient relationship to that territory. They do not. And what is their ethnicity, ethnic background? They are Arabs or Arabic. They are Arabic people, Arabians. That's who they are. And the Arabians don't have any claim to that territory. If we use the term Palestine, we are saying that they own that territory. And some people will call it the land of Palestine. Why do they call it Palestine? Because of this. In modern days, why do they call it? Because of this. Also, though, the word Palestine is not a biblical word. You'll notice in the Bible, nowhere is that the case. You may see a commentator's or an editor's footnote in the Bible that says to clarify that it is in reference to Palestine, meaning the land of Israel, but that's erroneous. They shouldn't be doing that. It is not the proper word or designation of that territory because it's not the land of the Philistines. There are no Philistines. Also, though, it came into existence and popular as a designation of that part of the world, Western Asia, the eastern uh, shores of the Mediterranean Sea or Western Asia, one of the westernmost parts of Asia. In that area, in AD 70 and AD 132 to 135, AD 66 to 70, and then AD 132 to 135, these are historically, historians know them as the first Jewish revolt and second Jewish revolt. The Jews, in both of those periods of time, 70 years after Christ, about 130 years after Christ, B.C. A.D., at that point in history, <clears throat> the first one was in the period of the apostles. The second one, all of the apostles had already died. So they are called the first Jewish revolt, second Jewish revolt. And they are revolting from whom? From the Roman Empire. They want their own nation. They want their own state. They're revolting from the Roman Empire, rebelling against Rome. And in the first revolt, the Romans, they conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and expelled many of the Jews, killed many of them, and expelled many of them. But in the second one, there were still enough Jews there, and they put down the revolt again. The Romans put down the Jewish revolt again in the second Jewish revolt, but also said, we're no longer going to call this place Judah or any other designation like that. We're not going to call it Israel. We're not going to call it Judah. We're going to call it Palestine because we don't want the Jews living there because when they live there, they always revolt against us and we don't want them to revolt anymore. 
So we're going to scatter them and deport them, exile them, make them live in other places and merge with the other peoples in our Roman Empire, no longer in the land of Israel. So, therefore, we're not going to call it Judah or Israel anymore. We're going to call it Palestine. And so for the Latins or the Romans, for many years, that's the name that they used to designate that region or territory. And it has been revived since the 1900s because of the conflict intentionally created. We'll get into that another time. Intentionally created in that area of the world, in the Middle East. So these are the terms and what terms are in vogue and what terms are biblical, which ones are unbiblical, and how we ought to look at them. More next time. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.